in addition to being young and relatively successful at that point and confident, I was also a bit naive. And I had decided that this company, Amazon.com, was really just a bookstore and that it shouldn't be valued any way different than that. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive these five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I've created from the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from ASTOTS Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Kevin Carter. Kevin, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Kevin Carter is the founder and CIO of the Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF, which is under the ticker code EMQQ on the New York Stock Exchange. And he's chairman of the EMQQ Index Committee. Prior to EMQQ, Kevin was the founder and CEO of AlphaShares, an investment firm offering five emerging markets ETFs in partnership with Guggenheim Investments. Previously, Kevin was the founder and CEO of Active Index Advisors, acquired by Natissis in 2005, and the founder and CEO of E-Investing, acquired by E-Trade in 2000. Kevin received a degree in economics from the University of Arizona and began his career in 1992 when he walked into the offices of Robertson, Stevenson, and company. Kevin, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, I didn't get very far. I live 15 miles east of San Francisco, and I can see the hospital I was born in from my desk and from my bed. So I, I, I haven't gone very far, and I've worked in the investment business for 28 years. And I, first and foremost, as an investor, I pray towards Omaha, and I try to think about all things through a Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger lens. But for the last 20 years, I've had one foot in the active world and one foot in the indexing world with my longtime partner, Bert Malkiel. Mm. It's interesting. I, I came to Thailand in 1992 and entered the world of finance in 1993. So just about the same amount of time, except I did all of that here in little old Thailand as the Thai economy was busting, booming, busting, booming, and busting. But you did a lot of your investment in emerging markets, let's say, from all the way over in the US. I'm just curious, maybe you can just tell us a little about, about the evolution, particularly, I'm interested in EMQQ a little bit to hear about what it's doing and for those, invest, those people who are investing who would like to know about it, who are listening, maybe you can just give us a little briefing about that. Sure, well, you know, when I got involved with emerging markets 16 years ago, I basically learned two things on the first day, which, you know, I give a lot of presentations and I, I tell people there's only two things you need to know. And I, I learned both of them on the first day. And the first thing, the positive thing is that, you know, the thing that's emerging in emerging markets are the people. 
right? You've got billions of people, 85% of the world's people, and they are, their economies are growing faster on average. Their incomes are going up and they want stuff. They want more and better food, more and better clothing, appliances, entertainment, vacations, cars, and they want their kids to go to Harvard. And so that's the lesson number one and the most important thing. And then lesson number two is a problem. And I learned this in the first five minutes when I got involved first with China, we, you know, we had, as I talked to you as we were getting ready, we, I had some Google engineers that were clients of mine right after their IPO. And they said, hey, we want to invest in China. And I said, fine, I'll try to figure that out. And I figured we'd use an ETF. And I went over to our portfolio managers and I said, look, you know, give me a list of all the companies in the China ETF, because these Google people want to invest in China. And before they gave me the list, my partner, Bert, pulled me aside and goes, look, when you get the list of all the companies in the China ETF, you're going to see that most of them are Chinese government-owned banks and oil companies. And I, you know, I was sort of skeptical and said, yeah, I've heard about that. And he went on to explain how a Chinese bank might make a loan to a, a company that was basically bankrupt so they wouldn't lay off their employees and have protesters. And that really bothered me. And and in the case of the China ETF back then, it was 80% state-owned enterprises and only, you know, seven or eight percent in the consumer. And so those are the, you know, those are the two most important things. Is if you if you want to make money in emerging markets, you probably shouldn't buy the index, the, at least the big traditional index, because it's full of these inefficient and corrupt government-owned banks and oil companies. And and the corruption is terrible. You got presidents of countries going to jail, as has happened in Brazil twice and Korea once. So, so you really got to focus on the consumer. And, and for a long time, I told people to just buy the emerging market consumer ETF. When they'd say, what's the best way to invest in emerging markets? I'd say, easy. McKinsey says the growth of the consumer is the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism. And there's a ticker symbol for that, E-C-O-N. And I had nothing to do with that ETF, but I knew it existed and it owned the 30 largest consumer stocks. And about eight years ago, I had looked at my own portfolio, which was very concentrated. I had five stocks, all of which were plays on the emerging market consumer. And three of those companies were in the emerging market consumer ETF and the database called them consumer companies. They were Chinese food, snack food and clothing companies. Mm. But then I had two other companies that were definitely consumer plays, but they weren't in the emerging market consumer ETF because the database put them in a box called technology. And those two were the Craigslist of China, Wuba, which traded on the New York Stock Exchange, has gone private now. And the fifth company was Mercado Libre on the NASDAQ MELI, which is the Amazon.com of Brazil. And after I looked at my portfolio, I thought all of these are great plays on the consumer the ones that are called consumer are growing at 15 or 20%. And I think they have a moat in form of brand equity. But the two other companies that are called technology companies, they were growing at 100% <laughs> and had incredible margins. Wuba had a 94% gross margin, which is where I look for moats. And, and while the PEs were higher, the PE divided by the growth rate, the PEG ratio, which is all I care about, was lower and very reasonable. And so I had that thought. And then a few hours later, my phone rang and it was a friend of mine with a three-year-old daughter 
And she said, what's the best emerging markets ETF for my daughter's college fund? And I started to tell her to buy the emerging market consumer ETF. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's not the best. The best one doesn't exist yet. It's mm. the emerging market internet companies. And I, I literally went back to my office after I got that call and started to build EMQQ. And what year was that? It launched in November 2014. So you've now been doing that for, let's say, eight, nearly eight years. Six and a half. We'll, Six and it half. Will, will be seven in November. Okay, got it. And how many stocks are in that ETF? Roughly. Well, right, right now there's 96 companies, but the list is growing. When right. we launched, there was 40 something. And there's a, I mean, this, this is the fastest growing sector in the world. And there are literally hundreds of unicorns, you know, whether it's the Uber of Indonesia yep. or the, you know, the, the Gojek. Gojek, or I mean, there are, there's lots go, going on. The Amazon of India, Flipkart, the Uber of China is mm. coming public. So, I think we'll be over 120 companies by the end of the year. And um, from a, let's say, a region or a country waiting, is it mainly China or mainly Asia? Or how do you, how is the waiting distribution? Well, so we, you know, we own every single publicly traded emerging markets, internet or frontier market. I'm sorry, emerging market, internet or e-commerce company. And we include frontier markets in our definition of emerging. And it's a, about... Two thirds China, a little less, you know, sixty something percent yep. China, and in Asia is definitely, you know, the largest part of it, as it should be. I mean, yep. Asia's, you know, if you look at emerging markets on a GDP basis or on a stock market cap basis or on a population basis, it's about sixty percent Asia to start with. So that's, yep, you know, it's, a, it's the weighting in the internet space is a little bit bigger than the broader indexes, and then it's about. In our fund, probably 10%, 15% South America, mm. and then uh, the rest, Eastern Europe and, and Africa. Yep. And um, just out of, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested, and I know that some of the listeners would be interested in this type of exposure. Maybe you could just explain how is the stock selection process? Like when most people who are listening think of, investing through some sort of ETF or fund, they think about an active fund manager picking the best bets, putting the money down and making those. But sometimes with, a, with an index or a passive ETF, generally the fund manager will just say, I own all of those stocks at market cap weighting. So you kind of got a, a very large you know, difference here between a passive fund and a pure active fund. How do you fit into that scheme of things as far as stock selection is concerned? Sure. Well, I mean, the, ultimately, this is a rules-based index. So we don't use the P word passive yep. here. I think that it's correct to consider most indexes passive. But as, as you know, and as I've said, I mean, I come from the active side. And that's one of the things that I think <clears> has <throat> given me an advantage in the indexing world is that I understand investing and I understand what gives companies value and and I ask questions. And what I've found is that for whatever reason, the people that populate the world of indexing don't always do that. And mm -hmm. so I found a lot of problems in the passive version of indexing. So, for example, when you get into emerging markets, sometimes you have a country that the database says is in this country 
or that country. But then you open the, the financial statements and you find out all of the, the revenues coming from a totally different country. So you, you might have a, for example, there's a, a South African furniture company that was the largest holding in the emerging market consumer ETF. And the database said it was South Africa and it made furniture. So that was a consumer durable. And it was true, the company traded in Johannesburg and was headquartered in South Africa, but all of the stores that sold the furniture were in France and Germany and Australia. Hmm. So, so the database doesn't always match the, the reality. So, um, so we, we have to do a decent amount of manual work in identifying the proper companies and making sure things don't get missed. And we've also recently added a rule to our index that gives the index committee the ability to basically override the rules. And if something is getting missed by the rules or that should be included or something's getting included that we don't think should be included, we can exclude it. So I'd say we're on the cutting edge, if you will, of the, of the very gray area between traditional active and indexing. And when you, let's just say that you go through your rules process, it sounds like, to me, it sounds like your rules process is kind of maybe somewhat of an elimination process, or is it a ranking process? In other words, once you've got your universe to say, okay, these 96 companies fit our rules, then what is the structure or the idea about how you then weight? Is it market cap weight or is it some yeah, other it, type of weight? It's market cap weighted with one modification, which is the largest position is limited to 8%. So when we rebalance in June and December, we'll rebalance back to a market cap weighting with 8% as the largest weight. And that's because Alibaba and Tencent, which are the two largest of these companies, they're significantly larger than the third and fourth largest companies. So if we put them in at a pure market cap weight, they would be like 40% of the fund. And so to ensure that we meet the diversification rules, we limit them at eight. Mm. And that basically takes some of the market cap away from Alibaba and Tencent and pushes it down onto the, the smaller companies. So it, it serves as almost a small cap and mid cap tilt. A little boost. Yep. A little yep. boost. And that's it. And then between the rebalances, the, the stocks move. And you know, usually by the time we get to the next rebalance, Alibaba and Tencent aren't in the number one and two spots. And one of the second tier companies, Mercado Libre or Pinduoduo, will have outperformed and become the largest, but then we'll sell it back down. And, and then we do have a, um, a fast track IPO rule. So anything that comes public that's over 10 billion in market cap is added with after three trading days. So we don't wait for the traditional rebound. Mm, mm. And I know, you know, previously you talked about your expertise in the area of tax harvesting and other ways of kind of augmenting kind of passive style investing. Do you do any things like that or is it just pure market cap waiting once you've made your selection and then just rebalancing? Well, first of all, I mean, ETFs by the nature of their structure are very tax efficient particularly versus a traditional open-end mutual fund. So, can you explain that to the listener who don't understand that? Well, I mean, I can put it in very simple terms. Every, you know, I've, I've had it explained to me in detail several times in the last 20 years, but I, I don't bother holding on to those details because they're not my job. But mm -hmm. basically, the way that ETFs grow and shrink is through market makers contributing a basket of securities into the fund of individual stocks to create new units and the way that, and, and also take them out to, to redeem 
shares. That structure leads to basically no capital gains taxes for the shareholders or very minimal capital gains distribution. So this is a structural advantage of the ETF as a product category. And one of the main reasons why ETFs have caught on so much is they're very tax efficient. The Mm. traditional mutual funds have really serious tax problems, including, you know, I don't know what the numbers look like now, but at one point, 40% of the value of the Vanguard S&P 500 fund was capital gains. And if you invested in the fund today and they sold a stock they bought 20 years ago, you would have to pay part of the taxes, even though you didn't get the gain over 20 years. So traditional mutual funds are, are you know, dying a, a slow death, largely because the ETF structure is advantageous for investors. So it's, it's a pretty tax efficient vehicle. And I think we actually are sitting on and carrying forward about $30 million of capital losses mm. to, to the extent there are you know, gains around the edge. And, and what about reinvestment of dividends? If you receive dividends of companies that are in there, are you reinvesting those or are you distributing them to the, the holders of the ETF? They're reinvested. Got it. Okay. Well, that's a lot of detail and I'm particularly interested. And I, if for the listeners out there, I, I really suggest that you go and search to try to find out more about EMQQ ETF. You can just go to emqqetf.com and learn more. And I know I will be learning more. And you know, what I call these, what you're doing is what I call kind of exposure fund. It's not so much that you're trying to say, I'm going to pick the one that's going to outperform, but it's like, I'm going to give you that exposure to this specific area. That's not going to be that, you know, you're not going to be sucked into having have exposure to, you know, Chinese banks that's owned by the government and could do anything. Would you agree with that, that it's kind of an exposure fund or how would you describe it? Well, I mean, it, it is an exposure fund. You know, I think that in the in the ETF nomenclature, they call us a thematic fund. Mm-hmm. Thematic, um, but, got it. But I don't, I, you know, as I told you, as we were getting ready for this, I made this fund for a very specific reason. I've been involved with the emerging markets for 16 years and trying to find the best way to to capture the real growth, which is in that consumption story. And and I stumbled on what I think is, in fact, I'm quite confident, I'm not 100% sure, but Mm. I'm pretty sure that that what I stumbled on is the fastest growing sector in the world ever (laughs) in terms of these companies. And I offer a $100,000 reward that for anyone that can prove me wrong, I'm not 100% sure that I'm right. Well, what about railroads? Well, Railroads were largely bound to physical limitations. Mm. These e-commerce businesses are quite scalable. Yeah. And so the the 11 year for the last 11 years the average annual growth rate for revenue has been over 37%. Wow. So I, I again I I've given a presentation over the last six and a half years to hundreds of professional investor groups, 100 CFA societies around the world. Mm. I've offered a $100,000 reward to anybody that could show me a sector of publicly traded companies that ever grew for 37% for a decade. Actually, the number was 38 and a half for the right. 10 years ended 2019. But now when I when I first gave my talk about this, I offered people a ham sandwich if they could show me a sector. Your confidence has obviously grown. 
Well, that, so that was in 2014 when I first launched. And I, I, you know, I don't have my chart here, but you can see those, those numbers were 40% a year plus. And then I, I kept giving this talk and I decided I should make it a little, little more exciting. When I was in Hawaii, I offered, and actually before I got to Hawaii, I gave a CFA society somewhere and I made it a $10,000 reward. And then I was asked to give a talk to the CFA society of Hawaii in 2018. And maybe it was just being in Hawaii. I was so happy. I changed my reward to $100,000, but then we put a few rules in. So there has to be at least 20 companies you know, mm. cherry picking. You can't include the companies that are part of our index. So anyway, I could be wrong, but look, it's hard to, for any company to grow at 30% a year for any reasonable amount Definitely. of time. For an entire sector to grow at close to 40% for 11 years is, I think, unprecedented. And what's causing it is it's really, it's a mashup of three themes that are captured in EMQQ, three mega trends. Mm. The first one we talked about, billions of people in the developing world wanting stuff, right? They're the thing that's emerging and they want yep. all the things we take for granted. And then the second mega trend is something that we take for granted as well. And, you know, back then when I had this idea, I was already seeing how my family's consumption was changing because of the smartphone. Yep. Right. I, I had a smartphone when I got, you know, eight, when I created EMQQ, but we only had it for a couple of years. And back then my, my family went to target four times a week or five times a week, but I started to notice the truck was coming to my house once a week mm. and then twice a week and the trips to target were going down. And so I was seeing how the smartphone was changing consumption, but I had a computer for 20 years before I had a smartphone. The reality is all these billions of people that are becoming consumers, they've never had a computer before. Mm. So the computer is the second mega trend in the story, but it's not on the desk and it never will be. So all of those billions of people are getting a $60, $80 Android-based smartphone made in China, running on Android, as I mentioned. And it's bringing with it the third mega trend, which I've had for 25 years, called the internet. Mm. I got the internet in 1995 in the Marina District of San Francisco on a telephone dial-up modem, and now the internet shows up in my pocket. Well, most of the world never got wired. And so all of these people are getting, they're, they're going from nothing to a computer, to the internet, and it's changing their worlds in a big way. And it's still pretty early. I mean, you, you know, smartphone penetration in India is only about 30, you know, two or 3%, which means you've got 900 million people in India alone that don't have a computer or the internet. So it's those three mega trends are driving this unprecedented growth. And part of it as well is that because the consumption infrastructure in emerging markets, as you know, is underdeveloped or undeveloped. And when I say consumption infrastructure, I'm talking about bank accounts with the debit cards in everybody's pockets mm. and televisions on the wall that have a thousand channels coming into them and target stores because those things don't exist the emerging market consumer is leapfrogging to more digitized consumption and bypassing the mall bypassing the bank account bypassing the cable television and that i think is also explaining 
the incredible growth rate. And it's quite a paradox. You would think, you know, the, the fintech part of the story, the mobile payments part of the story is the fastest sub part of the EMQQ story. Mm. And it all starts with payments. And, you know, as you know, in, in China in particular, but all over emerging markets, you can use your phone to pay for everything. I went to uh, China to do my PhD and I started in uh, 2013 and uh, literally, you know, everybody used cash. And by 2016, when I finished my PhD, everybody was only using their phone. Nobody carried cash. That's that's exactly it. And now, I mean, I, I remember two years ago in the Nanjing subway station, I tried to buy a bottle of water at the newsstand and I I walked over to the counter and I put my, my water bottle on the counter and I tried to hand the man a Chinese banknote and he told me, no, you can't yep. have that water yep. with, exactly. uh, with money. But up on the street, I could buy, you know, pigeons and turtles with a QR code, right? Or a lobster... <laughs> Like the, at Alibaba's grocery store, you know, the lobster has a QR code on his wrist. So um, it's true. Yep. So so it's sort of a paradox, right? You'd, you'd think a fintech entrepreneur in San Francisco like me would be on the cutting edge of this. But Africa no way. Yeah. is on the yeah. cutting edge of mobile payments. More than half of the world's you know phone-based payments are, are done by people in Africa. It's, it's a little bit like, well, I remember, you know, the, the big coveted prize for a telecom company in 1995 when you know at the time I was coming of age in Thailand was to win the landline contract where you would put down the landlines and one company got this great landline contract where they put down the landlines for all these phones and within a couple of years everything moved cellular and the whole country pretty much skipped that landline and all of a sudden that became a huge loss maker so I can see the, the leapfrog. I mean, I could, I could talk to you for a long time, but I have to say that my audience really wants to know your worst investment ever. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, so in the late 90s, I was a very confident young value investor a Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett wannabe. And I had worked as an analyst professionally and got paid very well by hedge funds and mutual funds for my research. And this internet thing showed up. And the, uh, the dot-com story was rolling. And I was, in addition to being young and relatively successful at that point and confident, I was also a bit naive. And I had decided that this company, Amazon.com, was really just a bookstore and that it shouldn't be valued any way different than that. And I spent a lot of time analyzing it and Barnes and Noble had been a pretty you know, popular growth stock back then. They had been sort of consolidating the traditional bookstore business. And I just remember looking at it and saying, well, Barnes and Noble's got their own website. And they've got, you know, a lot more experience in this. And so I, I shorted Amazon.com in March of 1998 with my small net worth. I had, I had made a decent amount of money, but then I had taken a year and a half off with my new wife and gone and traveled and spent a lot of it. 
And so, but I had a little bit of money left and I shorted amazon.com and I, I lost about a third of my net worth in a day and a half. And as I think I shared with you via email, my, my write-up I did back then, I concluded that with a $1.4 billion market cap, that there's no way Amazon could be worth that. And that while, you know, the, I, I knew at that point that stocks could trade off of their fundamentals for an extended period of time, but I was quite confident that within a couple of years, that stock would sell for a fraction of what it was selling at. And the, the market cap was $1.4 billion. And I think I wrote that any rational businessman would be happy to sell that company for $200 million in cash. And before I came down here to do this, I pulled up just to check the market cap of Amazon. And it's $1.6 trillion now. Which I think means, I think my position, I think I shorted $50,000 of Amazon. And if I had, rather than short it, if I had bought it, if my calculator was right and I'm not missing anything, that would be worth $50 million today. <laughs> so Tell me, to, what I have had, you learned from this experience? <laughs> well, well, I learned a lot. And, you know, as they say, Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So, <laughs> and in many ways, I should have already, I mean, I kind of knew the first lesson, which is don't make valuation shorts. I mean, I had, I had worked as the wingman for a couple of years before this for a guy named Joe Feshback, who was one of the sort of, you know, kings of short selling. And he used to tell me that we don't make valuation shorts. We find fraudulent companies. But yet I did. I shorted something based on its valuation, based on its price. So a valuation short for the audience basically means that you determine what you think is the value of this company. You look at the price and you say, this stock is way over the value that I calculate. And therefore, I think that the stock price is going to crash. And therefore, I'm going to take a valuation short. Was that, is that how you would describe it? Oh, certainly that's a part of the way of describing it. I think it's people rightfully are focused on earnings and they're looking at the price to earnings multiple. How much do I have to pay for a dollar of earnings? And it's good to look at that because ultimately what makes a company valuable is earnings. And so you definitely need earnings to make something have value. But what Amazon basically pioneered was, let's not even try to make earnings for a long, long time, right? Let's, rather than focus on this year, next year, the following year and reporting earnings, let's not necessarily lose a lot of money, but let's grow and grow and grow and build a platform on which when we choose to, we can start to make it profitable. And that is, now that's become, you know, a bit more commonplace, right? That companies aren't getting valued based on their short-term, you know, near-term earnings forecast, but rather on the longer-term opportunity. Mm. So lesson number one is don't make valuation shorts. Any other lessons you learned from this? Well, short selling has a very difficult mathematics behind it. And really... Frankly, it's really just not worth it. I mean, look, 
the most you can make in a short is 100 percent mm. right that's the most you can make and by the way if you short a stock at 100 and it goes to zero you make 100 percent and if you short it at one and it goes to zero you also make 100 percent so <laughs> a lot of times when you short something you don't have to pick the top you just find it when it's on the ropes so the mathematics are just so far against you. And the other problem is when you're short something and you're wrong, your exposure gets bigger, right? If you're long $50,000 of, of Amazon and it goes down to 25%, you know, you've lost $12,000 and your exposure is only 37 now. So it's become mm. a smaller part of your portfolio. But if you're short something and it goes up 50%, well, now you're if it was 5% of your portfolio, now it's 7.5% of your portfolio. And so it's short selling is a way to make money is, I think, not really a good idea, and especially when you can make 10, 20 times your money, or in the case of Amazon, a thousand times your money, if you're long and take advantage of the miracle of compounding. Yep. So maybe I'll summarize a couple of things I take away. I mean, the first thing is we have to always remember in part of this podcast, we go back and we look at mistakes that people make and we are engaging in hindsight bias. In other words, we're looking back and saying, if only I had done this, but you know, when we are making these decisions, we're making them with the best information we have at the time and then our application of our judgment at the time. So first thing for the audience to remember that as we think back, the second thing is, I would say, what I think a lot about is kind of the overconfidence bias. I know as an analyst, I've valued, you know, many, many companies over the years, and I've taught valuation now for 30 years. And what I can just say is that I always tell my students, you are always wrong. It's just a matter of degree. Nobody can make a perfect valuation. And so the, the answer to that really is questioning, you know, questioning everything and even you may not have the capacity to ask the right questions, such as if you think back, Kevin, to when you, know, you were going through this, you wouldn't have had the capacity to be able to think the earnings of this company could explode by, you know, this could go from $1 in earnings to 1000 No, Nobody would have that capacity to go to that length. So in that sense, this is where hindsight bias is really dangerous because we're looking at a really an anomaly, right? But the point I would just make is in valuation, we come up with a valuation estimate, we look at a range of value, and we, we have to accept the fact that it is an estimate. That's kind of my biggest takeaway. Anything you would add to that? No. I mean, I think that, that well, I mean, look, it's the irony in the fact that I, you know, as you mentioned, that, that the same week that I was shorting Amazon, I also saw this company change its name from you know, from KTEL to KTEL.com. And I found my copy of Random Walk and I picked up the phone and called the author who ended up becoming my business partner. And he drove, drug me into China. And now I, I have a China focus as all emerging markets, but a, you know, a China internet company or a fund that invests in Chinese internet companies, the Amazon.com of China. So the, the mm. irony in that, that I went from there to here is is not lost on me. And, and it kind of gets to what you said. It's like the world is changing and it's always been changing and it's always going to change. And it's hard to make forecasts about the future. But one thing is for sure, and that is the miracle of compounding. And 
the worst investment, the other, many of my other worst investment decisions were selling things that I purchased that were absolutely the right things to buy. And I was happy to take 100% or 200% gain in them. When if I had held them, I would have had, you know, in some of these 20, 30, 40 baggers, but just by letting that calendar flip over and the miracle of compounding work, you know, in my, in my favor. So let me ask you, based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And part of what I want you to address in that is that time, going back in that time when you had the confidence of, you know, I think I've got this right, I'm ready to bet some serious money on it. Well, I mean, all that really matters to me, and I think to any investor, is the peg ratio, right? It's the P.E., versus the growth rate. And this is, you know, this is Peter Lynch stuff 101, and it's not far off of John Burr Williams, you know, theory of investment value. But, you know, the math of investing is pretty simple, right? You've got your, you're competing against the bench, you know, the the index called the S&P 500, and you can see what its PE is and its growth rate. So you can see what its peg ratio is. And then you've got you know, any other index you're, you want to compare yourself with, you know, if you're emerging markets, for example, and then you've got the risk-free rate. And so, you know, anytime you can find a peg ratio lower than the S&P, hopefully with a better business than the, an average business, then that's what you want. You want great businesses at reasonable prices. And, and it really all comes down to the peg ratio. And it's, I'm still surprised a lot of times that not every investor seems to understand that. Can, can I ask a, a question? So for a new investor, they may look back, or for any investor, they may look back and say, well, Kevin, when you were looking at Amazon, you estimated the growth, you know, and the peg ratio. And let's just say that, let's just say it had earnings or something like that. And you say, you know, peg ratios next, next year is, and the, let's say the growth next year is 20%. But the question I have for you is, when you talk about the peg ratio, we're talking about PE relative to earnings growth. Earnings growth over what time? Because if, if you had been able to accurately predict Amazon, you would have said a thousand percent average annual return in earnings growth over the next 10 years, but not over the next two. Okay, well, you've just caught me, I guess, in not being consistent in what I'm saying. So First of all, when I look at the PEG ratio, I use the revenue growth rate. I don't okay. use the earnings growth. Great. I mean, er, obviously, earnings growth <clears throat> is what you're there for. But, you know, to me, the purest measure of a company's growth is revenue, right? Particularly, I mean, particularly in the area that you're looking at, where it's internet, e-commerce, that type of stuff. Yep. That's right. And so... And over what period of time are you thinking when you're, when you're kind of well, making Always your- long-term, five years. And so, so what I look at is the PE divided by the revenue growth. Now, but as you're pointing out, well, sometimes there is no E. And so- the That problem is eliminated if you use revenue. Well, the G, you know, stays, but the, there's no E in the PE. So you can say, well, let's say Amazon's selling for a thousand times mm. earnings and it's growing at 50%. You can say, well, that's a- that's a peg ratio of, of 200, yep. right? Mm. And so I'm thinking of the group that I invest in collectively. Yep. When I look at that group, while I know we have some companies that aren't in 
earnings mode, right? They're in land grab mode. We Windsorize those numbers in, mm. in producing the peg ratio. So the, the sort of core peg ratio for the group I invest in right now is 0.8. Yep. So you've, you've got 36, 30, this year, 38% revenue growth and a PE of 30. So it's got half the peg of, you know, the FANG stocks and a third the yep. peg of, of the S&P 500. But you're right, I, I, I'll have to rethink how I say that because I, I, we definitely invest in things that don't have any E at all right mm. now. Well, I think it's a good takeaway, the idea of using revenue growth, number one. Also, for the audience out there, he talked about the idea of Windsorizing. And if you were to rank every stock that you're looking at, let's say 100 stocks, and you put them into deciles, you would see that the top decile are the fastest growth and the bottom decile is the slowest growth. But one out of those 10 could be massive growth or massive negative growth, and it would distort the numbers. So Windsorizing is just taking the average of that top decile and applying that to that most extreme point to try to take it out of that. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my goal is pretty simple. Have fun. I'm going to Mexico two of the next three weeks. So I'm going to say my main goal is to have fun and try to re-enter the real world, which as we talked about, it's a little stressful. So, you know, the the stress disorder of being uh, traumatized by the lockdown is probably worse than the stress of re-entering the world, but I'm mm -hmm. going to do my best to overcome that Exciting. as I sit on the beach. Sounds great. And um, one last thing I would say is that this discussion reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra, and I just looked it up to make sure I got it correct. It says, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> so listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listeners, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. As we conclude, Kevin, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No. Have fun. Enjoy the rest of the year. And let's go 2021. Amen. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, saying, I'll see you on the upside.